Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Dan Madigan and Dan Connolly, as always, ready to talk Husky sports. And as always, there is a lot. Uh, we'll hit baseball, women's basketball, men's basketball, and then some of the business of sports. Um, to start, something we haven't really touched on on the podcast so far this year, um, but Yukon has a very good baseball team. The Huskies just wrapped up a weekend series at JOC, uh, the last game they ever played before they'll open a new stadium in a couple of years. But uh, Connolly, how are the Huskies doing this year baseball-wise? Give us the lowdown on this team. So they closed out J.O. Christian Field on Saturday, and they didn't really do it in great fashion. They dropped a doubleheader to USF, both single-run losses. Uh, it was a tough way to close out the park, and it's kind of part of a skid that the Huskies have been on. They started the season strong. They beat number four Louisville in the two out of three in the season opener, and it was their highest-ranked win that they've had over an opponent in the 21st century. But so since they started the series against ECU a few weekends back, they are six and eight over that span. And right now it's really the offense that's been struggling. They've only scored three runs a game in their last seven games. They've allowed just 1.8 runs if you take out a 12 run loss in that same span. So it's kind of surprising because the lineup was supposed to be a strength of this team. Normally it's the pitching that has the great arms that UConn's kind of known for. And they have some of those this year. They've got star pitcher Mason Fioli, who's started off the season a little slow, but his last two outings, he's had thrown six plus innings, had more than 10 strikeouts and less than three walks. And he's got a 3.25 ERA on the season, which isn't bad, but he started out the season injured. So he's still kind of, just getting into his groove. So they really need him to be strong down the stretch for them to kind of make a run and push for a higher seed into the NCAA tournament. They've also got Jake Wallace in the back end of the bullpen. He's their closer. He can hit the high 90s with his fastball. He's already hit triple digits with a fastball this year. He's completely lights out. He should be one of the first relievers picked in the MLB draft this year, if not the first. And it really wouldn't be surprising to see him reach the major leagues in a very short amount of time just because of the stuff that he already brings with his fastball and then a wipeout slider. They've also got uh, some other arms that have kind of emerged, a guy like Caleb Worcester, a redshirt freshman, lefty out of the pen that's been their, one of their setup men, and then C.J. Dandino has been one of their better setup men as well. So this is really coming down to a critical point in the season because USF came into the series ranked number 113 in the RPI. UConn came in number 26. So surprisingly, that loss only dropped them five spots in the RPI, which is really important when factoring in that at-large bid for the NCAA tournament. So they really need to close the weekend, the, the season strong next weekend at Tulane, and then they need to at least advance decently far into the conference tournament to feel safe on selection Sunday. Luckily the bubble is kind of weak this year in college baseball, not like a couple of years ago when they had one of the, uh, not a super strong resume, but definitely a stronger resume than other schools that got in and they got left out because of some bad luck on the last weekend with teams that were out out of the picture, winning the conference tournament and stealing a bid. So they really need a strong close to the season to lock up a spot in the NCAA tournament. And then you're also fighting for seeding, where if you're a two, you've got a good chance to host a super regional if you get through. Whereas if you're a three seed, that becomes a little less likely. Where would they host if they if they were to get that now that the field is closed? Yeah, they were never going to host a NCAA tournament uh, game of any sort at J.O. Christian Field. That was a glorified high school field. It was actually pretty funny listening to Jim Penders and the former baseball coach, Andy Baylock talk at the closing ceremony for the stadium that when they built that back in 1969 or 68, I'm sorry, 
it was the crown jewel of Northeast baseball. And now it's just <laughs> generally regarded as one of the worst baseball parks, not even in the Northeast, but just in division one baseball. And just the amount of success they've had in spite of that park is incredible. So it's exciting next season. Fingers crossed the new Elliott ballpark across the street will be ready for opening day. But if they did end up hosting anything in the NCAA tournament, it's probably going to be a Dunkin' Donuts park. And last year, they realistically would have hosted the NCAA tournament first round if Dunkin' Donuts Park was open. But I don't think the NCAA really wanted to send teams to Norwich like they did in 2010. It's just kind of tough to draw the fan base out there. It's a fine park, but if you're right on the edge and there's the option of sending a team to a non-campus location or sending them to an actual campus location with an arguably nicer park, they're going to go with the team that's going to draw better every single time so they, they do have a lot of work to do to even hope to host something but it would definitely be dunkin donuts park and it would be so much fun if yukon baseball played some important games at dunkin donuts park that park would be filled yeah that would be cool that would be cool yeah yeah so they'll end the regular season thursday friday saturday at tulane and then the aac tournament kicks off on may 21st which will be in Clearwater, Florida. Elsewhere in the land of Husky sports, Gino has been on the trail uh, since our last podcast, which was not even that long ago, like two weeks ago. Gino has added three recruits to the team, uh, three commitments. Two are going to be members of next year's team for sure, and then a third. Uh, is a uh, transfer who is seeking a uh, waiver to play. So potentially three players who could be new additions to this upcoming season's roster. Um, their names are Anna Makarat, uh, who's coming over, a guard coming over from Europe, a grad transfer, Evelyn Adebayo from Murray State, and Avina Westbrook from Tennessee. Um, I guess we should just we'll start with the latest one since it's the juiciest. We got Avina Westbrook transferring from Tennessee, Tennessee to UConn. That's that's fun. Yeah, that definitely cranks up the what what what's left of the Tennessee UConn rivalry. I remember when they announced the series, there was kind of just some excitement because of the two schools that are involved with it, but it really didn't feel the same because UConn is still a national power and Tennessee had no business being in this past NCAA tournament despite actually getting in. So the fact that UConn stole Tennessee's best player from them when they switched coaches, I mean, can you imagine Pat Summit's reaction? what Pat Summit's reaction would have been if she was around to see this? It would have been incredible. The quotes from both Gino and her would have just been phenomenal. It's it it's sad that Pat Summit's no longer around for a lot of reasons, but just she was such a huge part of this rivalry. But this is definitely a great way to crank it back up. And the fact is that UConn's getting a phenomenal player that if she can play instantly is going to make the Huskies arguably the best team in the country right up there with Oregon. She was the number two player in the class of 2017. She made the SEC all-freshman team, which pretty decent conference. Last year, she averaged just under a touch under 15 points a game, which was tied for the team lead. And she had four straight 20 point performances last year. The first Tennessee player to do that since someone named Candace Parker. And what I was surprised about is her assist average over her career was 4.78 assists per game. That's second all time in Tennessee history. And I'll have to check the stats here, but I'm pretty sure some good players have gone through Tennessee. None good enough to beat UConn in the national championship game, yeah, but they've had some decent players come through. So she's basically as good of a player as Gino could have gone out. And, she is as good of, she's the best player Gino could have gone out and gotten realistically. And the fact that she comes from Tennessee just makes it even better. Yeah, I think it kind of goes to show where the rivalry is at right now before things kind of heat up again when they play in uh, 2020 or, or 2021. Um, Dan, kind of what you alluded to, there's just no way that this would have ever even been in the realm of possibilities when um, 
Summit and, and Gino were going at it, especially at their peak. But uh, maybe Gino gave gave uh, Westbrook a tour of ESPN or something to really put her over uh, to commit to UConn. So it'll definitely be interesting. I mean, she's definitely the crown jewel of this, you know, recruiting class that Gino's kind of put together over the past. I think it was a, it was like an 11 day span that he brought in three pretty high quality players. So um, it seems like sh- there's a good chance that Westbrook will be eligible to play right away. That's what, you know, you kind of saying and what people uh, writers, the beat writers have been hearing. So, I mean, her and Walker and uh, combined with Dangerfield and Kristen Williams um, and, and either one of the new players or Olivia Nelson Odota in the fifth spot. Uh, like you said, Dan, that's as dangerous of a, of a team as there is in the country. So uh, even with Gino, you know, not doing as well in the recruiting trail as we initially thought um, earlier this year, he still managed to kind of go through and, and pick up some quality players to keep you kind of contention. I mean, yeah, amazing job restocking a roster that really needed it. And um, I think what's what else is interesting about it is just that's not really Gino's style historically um you know even just a few years ago natalie butler was like a bit of an anomaly because uh gino wasn't very big on transfers and um you know not to sound like the old coach complaining about the transfer epidemic but it is the it is the times and i'm not complaining i think now that kids are more aware of their options and the fact that there may be certain situations that are better for them, they they should be able to pursue other opportunities. So, um, if you're a good coach and you're trying to win, uh, there's there's good players available there. And then when when you're in the American Athletic Conference, you know you can't really afford to be choosy in your player acquisition strategy. So, um, yeah, amazing amazing job by Gino. Uh, two other players joining the roster who are going to be available. Uh, again, immediately. Connolly, what do you know about the grad transfer from Murray State? So Evelyn Adebayo, coming from Murray State, she started her career at Gardner-Webb, so she had to sit out a year as a transfer, which gave her this extra year of eligibility. She definitely adds some muscle down in the post, which is what UConn needs. She's not huge. She's only like 6'3", but she's strong. And I, I don't want to compare it to Nafisa Collier, because that's unfair to anyone, but she kind of fits that mold of the flex forward that Gino likes to play with someone that can get inside and rebound the ball. She's a really strong rebounder. She shot 37% from three, which is more than enough to keep defensive defensives honest. She can handle the ball last year for Murray state. She really had to do everything for that team. She was by far the best player on the team. So she was bringing the ball up the court. She was hitting threes the negative was that she did have a lot of turnovers, but that well, we still have to see, but that could be attributed to just her having to do everything. And when you have to do everything, you have to force some things and we have to force some things that's going to lead to turnovers. I'd say the biggest question mark from her is really just going to be how big of a jump is coming from the Ohio Valley conference to UConn women's basketball playing against the likes of Notre Dame and Baylor and Oregon. Can she make that jump? And early signs say she can, because she played two top 10 teams this year. Tennessee, ironically, was one of them. And she performed well. So that's basically going to be the thing to watch. Can she continue being as successful as she was at Murray State against some of the best teams in the country? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, Dan, you, you kind of alluded to it, but she's not going to put up uh, the scoring numbers that she put up at Murray State here at UConn. Um, not that she's not good enough of a player to do that, but just because the way Gino's offense is, you know, there's going to be a pretty balanced scoring load. Um, but she certainly has the talent to play at this level. She's from Britain originally, and I believe she's a little bit older too. So I think some of that experience will help. But I'm intrigued by her ability to kind of step out and hit the three a little bit. Um, especially with the way the game's going now, you can never have enough three-point shooters. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, she was one of the top defensive rebounders in the country last year, so she should make an immediate impact on the boards uh, on both ends. And um, she could be a real matchup problem for some teams, especially with the uh, you know bigger, slower uh, post players. She can kind of draw them out and maybe take them off the dribble. Yeah, and at the same time, I'm, you know, like you said, a strong defensive rebounder, something, you know, UConn has had some troubles with. Um, 
and something something we talked about in a previous podcast you know someone who is willing to be probably a role player on this UConn team so someone who's not coming here thinking they're going to be uh you know that that top level star but someone who's going to embrace playing that kind of grinder for being resourceful rebound putbacks uh kind of thing and and just uh making sure we limit you know kind of multi multi-shot possessions on the defensive end so um yeah i, th- I think again it, it's a good pickup something yukon really needed when you just kind of look at the roster and um you know credit to the coaching staff for going all the way to murray state and and finding uh that next piece of of what should be a really good team um the third uh the third new recruit is anna makarat uh she's coming from poland that's a guard i don't know that we're expecting too too much from her this year beyond you know with with Dangerfield, Williams, and others already on the roster, but um, you know, just another solid addition to have on the team for sure. Yeah, they do kind of have a glut of guards coming up because, as you said, you've got Dangerfield, Westbrook, and Williams, who are probably going to dominate the the minutes at the guard position. You've also got Megan Walker, who can kind of play forward guard ish in Geno's offense, and then the year after you've got obviously Paige Becker's coming in, Nika Mool coming in. There's two more guards. So I think she's going to give UConn kind of a different look than they have with their guards. She's much stronger than the other guards they have. They're not, but not as quick twitch maybe as like Crystal or Kristen are. I think she, she kind of reminds me of Megan Walker in that she's like a bigger guard so that I think, Gino might try and bring her to the inside to be that stretch for like wing type player that he deploys Walker as. So I think that's where she would, she would see minutes. It's kind of tough to say what her impact is going to be as a freshman because she's a year older than most freshmen. So she's got an added level of maturity. She's also been playing in the Polish women's basketball league, which has a handful of WNBA players in it. So it's not like she's coming in against high school talent or weak European talent. She's played against some of the best American players there are, and she's been good. So I think the learning curve shouldn't be as steep for her as for just a typical freshman coming in. I think the biggest thing that's going to hold her back would be her defense. That's supposed to be her weakest part of the game because she's pretty solid all around on offense, but She's a little slow-footed at times, and that kind of catches up to her on defense. And with Gino, you have to be good at defense before he puts you on the court. So I feel like that might be what holds her back more than being a freshman or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just like a no-brainer uh, for for someone with Gino to take a, take a chance on. Um, kind of crazy, given what the situation was a few months ago, but there's a lot of depth on this roster. Now there's a lot of capable players, especially at guard. Um, so there's no shame. There's no risk in taking on uh, a guard who's played at the professional level already uh, a little bit older for a freshman. Um, there's a chance that she comes in and contributes in some role right away, but if not, she still has a year to kind of develop, get used to being in the States, uh, everything that's associated with that on and off the court and uh, you know, can make an impact later on in the future. So I think it's just, you know, a really solid pickup uh, for at worst bench depth, but it could easily evolve into something much more than that really quickly. So how do we see the lineup looking next year? We, we kind of have been talking about it loosely, but um, if we were to project a starting lineup, I'm looking at uh, Dangerfield, Williams, uh, Westbrook, Walker, Adota. Is that... Is that? Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. Yep. I'd only be I I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe Adebayo get a start here or there, just as maybe Gino trying to send a message to Nelson Adota because I as strong as she came on at as the end of the season and as much of a jump as I expect her to make, she's still only going to be a sophomore, and she, there's still going to be things that she does that drives Gino nuts. So I think maybe Gino will just put Adebayo in there for more of a veteran presence if. Adota's scuffling, but yeah, th- that lineup that you said, I'd, I'd put my money on to be the opening day lineup. 
Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting, uh, you know, assuming that Westbrook is eligible um, and Adebayo's coming off the bench. I think she can really spell Walker or Westbrook for time. They're all kind of around the same size. Um, you know, Westbrook is, you know, Westbrook and Walker are the two best out of that bunch, but uh, Adebayo should be, you know, pretty confident to competent, excuse me, to kind of step in. So uh, it'd be fun, you know, with that group, uh, the starting lineup, like you said, but, you know, at a bio and for Walker or for Westbrook, they can still go four out with Nelson Adota and uh, down low. And, you know, it would be a pretty dangerous lineup, a pretty different look than um, what UConn's had in the past. We're also not even mentioning Aubrey Griffin there. Only incoming American freshman who's a McDonald's All-American and has routinely gotten the high, high praise of Gina Oriyama. So if she's like your eighth, seventh or eighth player coming off the bench and can give you 10 minutes a game as a good defender and a good rebounder, that's just another added layer of depth there. Yeah. I was just about to say Griffin, uh, also someone who, who could potentially contribute early, but even if not, um, the, the cupboards are, are back to being full. There's two 2020 recruits on the way. Um, and uh, possibly more. So lots of room for optimism with the women's basketball team and the brutal, brutal drought of national championships that the poor fans of that team are experiencing right now. Um, on the men's side, just a couple of quick notes on the men's basketball recruiting front. Uh, RJ Cole, a transfer from Howard who played for Coach Hurley Sr. in New Jersey back in high school um, is wrapping up a visit at UConn. Uh, hearing that the Huskies are in good shape for that one, which would be the uh, final scholarship opening on the roster. Um, Precious Achua, uh, a highly touted recruit who some believe uh, UConn may be in the running for is also expected to make his announcement this weekend. Um, our feelings on that collectively would be, uh, don't get your hopes up. Probably not going to be, uh, UConn for precious. Um, in better news for the men's basketball team, they are slated to play in the Jimmy V classic. So once again, we'll have a chance to see the Huskies at Madison Square Garden. The field there will include Texas Tech, Louisville, and Indiana, uh, with the rumors on the street being Louisville as the matchup. But either way, should be a good one. Yeah, so uh, Dave Borges uh, originally said that there is – he heard that UConn would be playing an unnamed Big 12 team. Um, now we found out that that Big 12 team is Texas Tech, but uh, he kind of followed up on that and said that Louisville would make a lot more sense. So, I mean, between Tech coming off a national runner-up, appearing, uh, national runner-up, Louisville and Indiana, who would you guys prefer to see for that first game? Um, I'd personally like to see Louisville a little uh, Steve Steve Enoch revenge game. Uh, I think it'd be a pretty pretty compelling matchup. <laughs> Yeah, if we play Louisville, Enoch's going for no less than like 25 points and like 15 rebounds. That's just a guaranteed. It's going to hurt. Plus, he grew up in, in Norwalk, so like, you know, really 30 minutes from there, basically. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's doing pretty well for Louisville. Uh, we we always knew he had all the talent in the world. So <laughs> that I think that for me, that would be tough. It'd be tough for me to see Steve Enoch in a, in a Louisville jersey, I have to say. Um, Indiana, I, I remember UConn played Indiana at MSG in um, November of 2013. The I think that's the last played. time they played. Yeah, and that was an amazing Shabazz game. He scored like – he scored a lot. Of, I mean, he did normal Shabazz Napier things. Um, so, yeah, there's a little bit, of, little bit of magic for all of them, even Texas Tech, who knew. Um, but – I think either way, we always fill the garden, and that's that's the good stuff these days, especially with the way that AAC schedule looks when you when you go look at the regular season schedule and that that ticket slate comes out. Yeah, I mean this this non conference slate that the men's team has together for this season is 
pretty interesting. I mean, there's games against Villanova and Florida and then another tournament as well in the Charleston Classic down in South Carolina. So, I mean, if, if UConn can win a game at MS, you know, win a game in the Jimmy V Classic and then, you know, maybe beat Villanova or Florida, um, there's a lot of room to really climb up and, and make some appearances back into the uh, top 25. It's one of the toughest Whoa. schedules. That, big, big appearance, but one of the toughest non-conference schedules that UConn's had in a while. So uh, pretty cool to see the Huskies playing, you know, fun, competent teams again. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. It's a big year for Hurley. Yeah, we felt things after that Syracuse win, which was the first time I think any of us have felt things about the men's basketball team in years. And yeah, and I just want to get back to that. That was fun. That's more fun than losing by 30 to Houston in the AAC tournament. So yeah, I, I vote that we do more winning this year. When did, So yeah, I, I was going to say for me, it was watching um, – the the corner th- the second corner three in 2015 that was when i was like i am dead inside i no longer have feelings about this i am now a lobster you know like i, I there was nothing else for me at that point the wagner loss for me the wagner loss uh in uh ollie's final season that one like really sucked the soul out of my body i i really hung in for a long time i was a student at the time so i had help too but the the Wagner loss just oh my god it was just miserable. The Wagner loss was the first basketball game I attended as a student at UConn, <laughs> and then followed that up with the North, the Northeastern loss officially killed me. That was the like, epitome of brutality. Northeast or <laughs> Wagner, I was like, all right, like this some like every once in a while, like a big school gets upset by a little school, and then Northeastern happened, and I. Uh, little freshman Daniel just went back to his dorm room and was sad. I was also going to say there, there are a few wins that felt awful. You know, like there, there was the time they beat Columbia in overtime. And oh I was just God. Like, yes. Just well, in, no, it was like Colombian overtime, then like Monmouth in overtime. And then yeah, like, yeah. You might have even had trouble with like Coppin State. That's oh. exactly right. Coppin State was like, I don't know. Want to talk about it? Yeah, Coppin State was looking solid, the number three hundred forty-two team. <laughs> anyway, the, it's probably because yeah. David and Norris started that game and played like forty-five minutes in a forty-minute basketball game. So yeah, next year's team will be better. It is a big year. It is a big year. We do need to see improvement, but fun schedule. What is going to be different is that hey, tickets are going to be free for students. That's fun. Uh, What's less fun is that if you are not a student, you now have to pay a personal seat license. Thoughts? People aren't happy. Um, it, it's for, for some people, it's a pretty dramatic increase, and um, it, it's going to come down to making a decision about whether they want to do it or not, uh, as, as for the men anyways. The women's season ticket prices have more or less remained unchanged from what I understand. So um, it's definitely interesting. I understand the switch, especially with making student tickets free. Um, But it's a very, it's very interesting timing giving the state of the program right now. Um, If this was after UConn won the championship in 2014, or, you know, in that stretch from like 2009 to 2011, where they were consistently in the mix, I think people would be a little bit more understanding uh, and be more willing to pay. But given how bad these teams have been, frankly, I mean, we just talked about how bad it was. I was just looking through an old schedule uh, from 2016 when we beat Chaminade by 11. Um, just so depressing. But I mean, given given the state of the program right now, it's some people are going to have a really hard time justifying those costs. And I think student attendance will be really good, but I can't guarantee that attendance overall is going to be any better. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's good that student tickets are free. That's the way it should have been. And I, it, it just kind of feels like weird timing to announce those things because you're announcing that regular season tickets prices are going to go up. And then the people that are trying to make their decision on, well, I'm supporting the, student athletes or then they see well student tickets are going to be free so are some people going to now be like well i'm 
paying for my tickets and student tickets now. Like, I don't want to do that. It's I, like, it's just kind of a tough spot for UConn to be in because they really do need the money because things aren't great now. And it's hard to blame them for trying to find ways to make more money because that's what the athletic department needs to do. But it's just the juxtaposition of the two is kind of tough. I think ultimately the, t- the tough part is you, you, you really want to get as many people to these basketball games to UConn hosting Tulsa as you freaking can. So um, it, it, the, the, the money's already off in terms of like being a season ticket holder versus I'm trying to go to a lot of UConn games and not spend very much money. Uh, you know, at this point, everyone who buys season tickets, you know, does so knowing it's it's just a commitment. It's something we do for the good of the school. It's almost like a donation. But if you're someone watching your budget and you're just trying to go to a decent chunk of UConn games, um, in this day and age, you, you know that you can wait until the day before or the day of on on any of Ticketmaster StubHub and that stuff. So. Uh, until that changes, you're not really going to get any action on a personal seat license. And maybe you're super high on the Hurley era. That's great. But in the meantime, you've still got uh, a building process that's happening. So, uh, yeah, I think this this might be a weird year for, for attendance for men's hoops. I don't know. And it's just so interesting. Um, and, and there's a lot of factors that go into this. Uh, and people that are much smarter than I am probably know it better than I do, obviously. But uh, really interesting that it's really only for men's basketball too, because the only successful program um, that sells tickets has been the women's basketball program. And that's more or less been unaffected. Um, no disrespect to uh, Nancy Stevens and the field hockey program, but they're not selling a lot of season tickets. I don't think. Right. Why not the people, the, the fans of the women's team are the ones who are buying tickets, no matter what, who are your most ardent and active supporters, but Maybe you are trying to keep them happy. Who knows? All right. So we really need that break. And we're back. All right. Sweet. Thank you for the ads, Vox Media. To close things in this (laughs) uh, episode of the UConn pod, we thought we would try something new. I happened to be uh, just, you know, perusing the internet, looking into stuff. It was Jim Calhoun's birthday. Uh, a couple of days ago and I was just looking at photos, reading and stuff about them. And I really came across an article that captivated me and, and captured my attention in a way that few articles have not been able, have really have not in, in, or really are able to. Um, The, Story can be found on waterburyobserver.blogspot.com. The entry is from March 15, 2009, by someone named John Murray, who claims to have written for a lot of different publications. The article is titled, Jim Calhoun is Out of Control. And I thought we could discuss this article. I was not super online in, in, in the year 2009. I was... Um, I was actually a student at the University of Connecticut, um, but I was definitely not reading stuff on Blogspot. I might have been checking the Boneyard occasionally, and I feel like I was reading this, and I feel like I might have come across it, but this really is a, a, a truly stunning piece of journalism on really life. Uh, beyond, it goes beyond sports and tells the story about struggle economics and how to be a better man and grace of course grace and civility some of the cornerstones of sport in america did you guys uh i i know i sent it to you so you all all actually have seen it but Conley, i think you said you you remembered seeing it before yeah so i was 11 when the article originally came out which means i probably had to ask my parents to go on the internet so i don't think i (laughs) so i don't think i read it uh the date of publication but yeah i was reading it and just something struck like the deepest memories as i was going through it i don't i don't know how i ended up in the rabbit hole that got me there i don't know 
why however young me decided to read the whole thing but yeah i've seen it before and i i guess i didn't truly appreciate it the first time because after reading through it again it was like you said it was just uh, it, it is something that has never been created before and it has not been created after it was just something someone's got to do the job that the journalists want it's truly a masterpiece i mean i i had never seen it before until you brought it to my attention Amon, and i'm so thankful that you did uh really enjoyed reading through it this past weekend um it's like a hot take time machine back to 2009 between the blogspot url and the white text on the brown background um a lot a lot of good pictures embedded in it um some really good anecdotes about sticking it to the man not eating those uh meals provided by yukon to really drive home some some good points so um really just a great piece i highly recommend giving it a read if, if you guys have some time it's it's a lengthy one i think dan uh did the dirty work here and said it's a, a little over 4500 words um but it's well worth your time each word uh, is truly yeah. fantastic Clocks in at a modest, modest 45-27. Here's the start. Here's the beginning of the article about titled Jim Calhoun is out of control. It was a crisp autumn evening in 2006, and Hashim Thabit was about to begin his basketball career at the University of Connecticut. Thabit spent the first 16 years of his life 7,600 miles from Yukon. Thabit's dream was longer than a long shot kind of like trying to hit a 325-yard drive with your putter. Hard-hitting stuff. He mentioned that Jim Calhoun has a, a very bad temper. I don't know if this guy, John Murray, has ever seen any basketball coach before, but he did seem to want to feel the need to single out Jim Calhoun. Calhoun wasn't just satisfied to verbally abuse his players. Moments later, his wrath spilled into the stands. A fan behind the Yukon bench hollowed out some benign comment. Calhoun spun around to a group of men, women, and children, and screamed, Shut the F up! Sitting ten feet behind the Yukon bench, I was stunned too. I wondered, how could Calhoun get away with this? Does coaching a championship basketball team give the man carte blanche to behave like a vulgar idiot? Here's where he starts to really... Yeah, exactly. Spoiler alert. Have you been paying attention? And we still have this argument in 2019. So uh, just in a, in a little different bit of a way. But here's, here's his proof to nail the point that Jim Calhoun has gone too far. My friend Andy and I were talking and we concluded that Connecticut is in, a, in an abusive relationship. We let him abuse us because he takes us to the promised land of NBA championships. We trade dignity and grace victory so he's disgusted at jim calhoun disgusted he does cover all sides so he's he's a fair and balanced journalist off the court calhoun and his wife donated one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars to calhoun cardiology research fund and the jim calhoun celebrity golf tournament has raised an additional three million dollars to support the cause calhoun has worked tireless hours raising public awareness for autism diabetes and cancer he is a generous man. Next sentence. He is also abusive and vulgar. Next, a little bit later, he, he drops he drops a hard analogy, gives us a real, really drops us into the story. To say Calhoun is controlling is like saying the economy is struggling a little bit right now. This is a reference to 2009's Great Recession. You, you guys may remember that. Uh, Dan was 11. Um, and then he gets into the exchange between the very famous exchange between Jim Calhoun and famous gotcha journalist and marijuana enthusiast, Ken Krayeski. So you guys do know this story, of course. Uh, oh, uh, considering that you're the highest paid state employee and there's a $2 billion budget deficit. Yep. Do you think that Not a dime back. <laughs> Not a dime back. Not a dime back. I'd like to be retired someday. So I'm getting tired. 1.6 million is enough. I'm sorry. 1.5 million. I make a lot more than that. You do. Yeah. What's the uh, what's your what's the take tonight? I, I don't know. What's the deal with Comcast work? You're not really that stupid, are you? Yeah. I am. Okay. No, really My best advice to you. Yeah. Shut up. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate it. You're welcome. No, it wasn't polite. I mean, like, you shut up. This is like, if you want to talk to me outside, I'm more than happy to talk to you. We're talking well, about basketball. If you guys covered this stuff, I wouldn't have to do it. Will you please? I'm quite frankly, we bring in $12 million to the university. Nothing to do with state funds. We make $12 million a year for this university. Get some facts and come back and see me. Get some facts and come back and see me. Don't throw out salaries or other things. Get some facts and come back and see me. We turn over over $12 million to the University of Connecticut, which is state-run. Next question. I thought, you know, this was, this was interesting to me because it was a little bit of background on something that I just know as a video clip. And here we got this, like, really great behind the scenes. Yeah. Not, not to jump too far ahead in the story, but uh, personally, my favorite part was actually nothing to do with the actual story itself, but it mentions uh, pregame media meals. And if you've never had a pregame media meal, you get a boxed lunch, which features a cold cut sandwich, some bomb cookies, uh, chips, and usually a water if you're lucky to get there early enough. Uh, the article mentions they got chicken tenders like on a gamely basis. So I really regret not being like 10 years older. Right, yes. He. So, so what you did described dan which was a, a box lunch meal and uh here's here's how this author described it kransky rails against the clubby atmosphere that exists yukon lays out a buffet of food for the writers to eat they are given salad chicken tenders lasagna bread and butter giant cookies it's all free and before the game, writers and photographers sit around large wooden tables. How dare they sit on large wooden tables, gorging on state-subsidized food. If they feed you, you become part of the family, Krayeski said. The free food compromises a writer's integrity. Krayeski refuses to eat the free food. <laughs> Imagine being that much of a dink in life. Just a just a true a true masterpiece, yeah. And I mean, honestly, it's pretty amazing that there's a whole part of the article talking about Krayeski's, you know, interaction with Calhoun in that famous "Not a Dime Back" scene, and it's not even the weirdest or most awkward thing that's about him in that entire article. Imagine like this dude just like showing up to a basketball game with like a taco salad from the Union, and then like. What one of the writers is like, dude, you know they have chicken tenders upstairs, and then Ken just like throws like a chicken tender at the dude, and he's like, "You are part of the family now," and then like kicks a chair and storms out. We can't, cannot deny, cannot confirm or deny that that happened or or did not happen. It's yeah. I mean, again, I think there there is something to be said about this. You know, he really goes after the horde, um, who. You know, these guys are writing game recaps. So, of course, they're going to write, how about the 10 rebounds that the dude had? Well, you know, what did that mean for you? And stuff like that. And, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, there are questions about how much you're paid and stuff, you know, stuff outside of games that you're welcome to ask. I think in the, in the, in the forum of a, of a, a, game, a post-game press conference, it, it is out of line. You've got you've got other availability. You've got um, uh, what's it called? You know, you've got pregame availability where you can grab them and ask those kinds of questions. To jump in at a game, it, it is a weird. It is a first is question, a ask, and you are trying to go after him. Yeah, yeah. So, even even electronic mail, I'm on. Back then, you could use that too. You could have used the electronic mail, getting in touch with the communications team. Well, and like Who it's. Knows? It's one thing to ask it. Like there was the whole incident this past year with uh, the Hearst, Connecticut's Jim Fuller asking Edsel about implying about firing Crocker and Edsel walked out on the press conference, but yeah. Fuller made sure to do it as the last question of the press conference. I'm pretty sure the money question was the first question of the press conference, which is like... Well Right, it, it, and, this guy, and this guy tells us, he goes, Ken says, I'm going to drop a bomb on Calhoun. He says it in this article. So I got additional context to how, like, silly this guy was. I was like, a, you know, 
if maybe you're a guy trying to defend Ken Craig, you go, oh, well, you know, it's 2009. There's a recession going on. Maybe someone's got to ask the hard questions. But this guy was obviously trying to go after him. Yeah, it's not an unfair question in a vacuum. But, like, the entire way it was approached and the way it was asked and just the history between the two, it like, it just blew up into the most beautiful, perfect storm that we now get to relive it with a two minute clip on YouTube forever. Yep. So the author of this article, John Murray, his work has appeared in the Hartford current Connecticut magazine, sports illustrated the Boston globe and the New York times. Also, if you um, are listening to this, John, like hit us up. We'll, we want you on the podcast. We will talk. Yeah. Very quickly. What's everyone's favorite Calhoun YouTube clip? Is it the not a dime back or the Ryan Gomes, um, Ameka Okafor, Ben Gordon? They're not bad. I messed up. They're not bad. <laughs> I took Ameka Okafor and Karan Butler. They're not bad. I can't take every player. We have 13 scholarships. I don't know what else I can say. And if you want me to say up, up. Write it. No, I mean, the question was asked. I posed it right off the bat. I, I gave Bill a slap, and he'll probably slap me later, which is just fine. That's part of the deal. Um, you know. But I, I answered the question. I don't know how else I can answer it. And you want to go deeper into it. You want me to say I fucked up? For the fifth time, I fucked up. All right, so put it five times. I, I have a uh, more underrated one to go with. Uh, it's, it's an in-game clip posted by our guy TCF. It is, I believe, the 2012 season, the first round game of the NCAA tournament against DePaul. Ryan Boatwright didn't make a pass that Jim Calhoun wanted him to, and uh, Jim Calhoun politely and kindly, quietly off to the side, told him to hit the man. <laughs> Paraphrasing. <laughs> My, mine has is also, I mean, it's not... It's not low key at all, but it's my favorite Jim Calhoun clip is his celebration of the Kemba Walker step. Oh, oh that's like, good. That's good. like you know, jumping up and down, celebrating as hard as he can, as as much as his body will let him. Uh, and and yeah, that's my favorite. That and there's actually a very emotional one. I think it was the Jim Calhoun tribute video that UConn made, or maybe TCF made it, but it's. <laughs> Um, it's to like a country version of like, won't back down. Do you guys know that one? It's like kind of emotional. It's just, it's just photos, but, uh, and then that song, but it's like an entire montage of photos. Also, just while we're here, before we wrap up, I just wanted to give a, a quick shout out to Yukon golf's Jimmy Herval, who, uh, qualified for the NCAA tournament first individual qualifier since 1992. He shot a 67 today uh, in the first round of the regional tournament in Kentucky and he's tied for second uh, in a field of like over 75 golfers so hopefully he can keep it up and, and uh, you know advance to the next round but uh, pretty incredible performance I gave it a the leaderboard a quick look I think he's the only golfer from the northeast that's even in the top uh, even in the field and in the top 75 so pretty impressive for noted golf powerhouse UConn what a fun Damn. brand to be good at to be good at sports that, that nobody else in the Northeast is even half decent at. Right? Is that like, like Rutgers they, being really good at wrestling and nothing else? Like that, except better. better. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, or us <laughs> being really good at baseball. Right. So it's like baseball or even soccer. Like I mean, I guess there are I don't yeah. know. There's not there's not that much good good up here, and most of the better teams are yeah. in the warmer places. Yeah, we were low-key like the best soccer school in the country for a good like 20 years. Right, so, with all those national championships. But like consistency. No, I know. We've actually had this argument before. I, I remember. Have we? <laughs> yeah. About, yeah, about the soccer team. Coming this fall, a two-hour-long weekly uh, UConn soccer podcast where we just argue about this. We just argue Daniel about the past. <laughs> That's all there is to talk about. It's just Dan Connolly taking in calls from Angry Banner <laughs> and, and Tim Fontenot, and that's it. Sounds about right. Who, who wouldn't listen to that? 
And that's going to do it for us this week. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to the latest episode of the Yukon Blog Pod. Catch us on the web anytime. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Gonna stand my ground, won't be turned around. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down, gonna stand my ground. And I won't back down. It's so it's it's a masterpiece. <laughs> it's it's a time machine back to two thousand nine in every way, shape, and form. It's like, incredible. There's so much. There's a line in there that's like a story, which is tough to verify, and then he just tells the story anyway. <laughs> it's like he admits on his own. All in that, white on uh, brown. It's not a valid story, right? And then I'll like copy pasted a lot of that text. It's literally just like if there was a boneyard thread and he just turned it into an article because it has like no connection. It's like just loosely put together. Oh, I, uh. do you have a rough word count on yeah. that? It's gotta be like what? 10,000, like, or like <laughs> two, 3000 words. This guy would have totally joined the athletic. Yeah. Can we get this guy on the pod? Um, Can we like track him down and find yeah. him? <laughs> I bet he's on TV right now. <laughs> He did mention class and grace like 14 times also. What is the, what even is the Waterbury Observer? Began it's a newspaper and water he worked for, he's So he's written for like, outlets, allegedly. He's written for like all the obscure ass newspapers in Connecticut that are probably owned by Hearst now. And the Current Connecticut Magazine, Sports Illustrated, The Globe, and The New York Times. I don't believe that, but. I just want you to know that any publication you love was never that good. That's the, the lesson you should actually take from that. True.